You're listening to Nowhere to Run with Chris White on the Revelations Radio Network. Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome to Nowhere to Run. Thanks for listening. Today we've got an interview with Chris Putnam, that's C-R-I-S Putnam. He is an apologist and author. He has um, a website called LogosApologia.com. I'll link his website, Facebook, YouTube, email, all in the show notes of this episode of Nowhere to Run in case you want to look up more about him. But he is a great guy, a good friend, and he's also somebody that has a great testimony. So the first part of this interview is going to be his testimony, where he came from, how he got into apologetics. It's really good, uplifting, and powerful, so stick around for that. And then we talk a lot about apologetics, the state of apologetics, what's interesting, and some random um, things that I think a lot of you will find interesting. So it's a great show. Stick around. And here is Chris Putnam. Chris, it's uh, it's an honor to be asked to be on the show. And, um, you know, most of all, it's it's really an honor to uh, to be able to give a testimony. To, to have a testimony is an awesome privilege. Um, I'm just I'm really overwhelmed at the grace of our God that um, that, that he forgives and justifies sinners um, like like myself. Uh, and, you know, and my testimony is, is, is one of, of a very lost sinner, um, for most of my life. And, uh, you know, I, I certainly don't want to glamorize any of that, but I, I do want to, um, get into some of the details because the purpose in doing that is, is to show, uh, the grace and, and of our God and, uh, that he justifies the ungodly, you know, that, while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Uh, that that really overwhelms me when I think about how much of an enemy I was of God in my mind for a long time. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna read a quote by Augustine, and, and you know I don't particularly subscribe to all of Augustine's theology necessarily or anything, but you know in studying church history, the thing that impressed me the most about him was that he was a deeply flawed man. Um, he's got a, a, a book called Confessions, and he struggled for much of his life with, uh, I think his thing was really sex and sexual sin, but um, and uh, he, he couldn't overcome it, and he wanted to, and he couldn't. And um, finally, you know, he, he appealed to the grace of God, and, and it was taken away from him. And um, that that's a lot of my story, so I can really relate relate to him in that regard. Uh, but this quote is just a short one. It's it's from the Confessions. It's chapter eight. I think it's eight point ten is the way they notate it. But, but he says, "My will was the was the enemy master of." Now he means Satan. My will was the enemy master of, and thence had made a chain for me and bound me, because a perverse will was lust made. And lust indulged in became custom. And custom not resisted became necessity. By which links, as it were, joined together, whence I term it a chain, did a hard bondage hold me enthralled. Okay, that's, that's Augustine's pre-conversion experience. And, um, you know, he struggled with that. And that book, Confessions, is a lot about that struggle. You know, so like, like Augustine, 
I mean, for most of my young adulthood, I, I was not a Christian. You know, I was a pretty bright, curious child. I asked a lot of questions. Um, my dad was an engineer and he was trained in science. So I, I learned a lot of, a lot of neat things and I had a lot of opportunities, educational opportunities. I, I, I didn't have, you know, I wasn't poor and I, I didn't, I had, you know, I was pretty upper middle class and, uh, but, you know, through a, a sequence of unfortunate life experiences, I, I became really skeptical of Christianity. Um, at times, I was openly hostile to Christianity. I thought it was nonsense, um, and I felt that I had really good reasons to think so. When I'd gone to a Methodist church until I was about age four, and I still have kind of fond memories of my father holding me, holding my head up in a grapevine behind the church. And, you know, I was like four years old and I had this, this kind of picture in my mind of being up in the grapes and I can still remember that. Um, but things went downhill fast from four, four years old there. My, my parents stopped going to church altogether when my younger brother became ill and lost his hearing. He, he got meningitis and it was misdiagnosed and the high fever caused him to, to become totally hearing impaired. Um, and, and, you know, I believe my parents really blamed God for that happening. Um, my mother wouldn't stop crying. She wouldn't come out of the bedroom for, you know, like a year. My father turned to alcohol. Uh, my family life became pretty violent and unpredictable. Um, this was the early seventies, you know, and at that same time here in, uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, in, in the deep south in the Bible Belt here, there were, there were a lot of faith healers on television and they were healing deaf people. Um, you know, and yet God didn't heal my brother. And, uh, I even remember calling the, the number that was on the, on the screen of the television and, and asking them to heal my brother. Um, and of course they couldn't do anything. And, uh, you know, I decided that it was all staged. Uh, Christianity was just a useful fiction that comforted gullible people. Um, you know, at the same time, my family life was growing more unstable and my father's alcoholism was progressing. And, uh, you know, there was some violence and things like that going on in the home. You know, and I'm six, seven, eight years old during this time. And, you know, I'd already made up my mind that, that Christianity was, was a show, um, and that it was fake and, uh, that the people were scamming people for money. I mean, and my dad probably reinforced those ideas, but I mean, I, I came to those conclusions on my own from, you know, the stuff I saw on television. And, you know, you know, as I grew up, I, I showed some promise in math and sciences, but I, I was really attracted to the whole counterculture of the 1970s, the rock stars, Woodstock, Jimi Hendrix, that whole scene um, really started to have a pull on me. You know, and I worked pretty hard at, at music and uh, I started, I, I was taking classical guitar lessons when I was like 10 years old. And so I started to have these dreams of being a, like a famous rock guitar player. But really, in reality, I started pursuing the rock star lifestyle a lot harder than the music proficiency. And, you know, I started to make some really bad choices. Um, my, my teenage years were dominated by rebellion and hedonism. Um, and, you know, I started to use a lot of different substances, psychedelics and marijuana during that time. But and that started that progressed as I got older. Um, you know, sin rendered me empty and hopeless. And it got to be where drugs seemed to be the only source of relief, but they never lasted. Um, 
You know, as I struggled with addiction, I started getting criminal charges, uh, DWIs, drug possession. You know, I had a sense of right and wrong, and but you know that really only instilled shame and depression. And then I would seek to numb that. Um, as an adult in my in my thirties, I became hopelessly addicted to drugs. Um, I was in and out of treatment centers, like 30 day programs. I probably went to five or six of those. I really don't need, I even lost track. Um, I, I mean, I knew that I had a problem and I wanted to stop at times. I mean, I had substantial periods of clean time, um, you know, a couple years and, and it always relapsed. Um, you know, this was extremely frustrating and it was very humiliating. Um, and, uh, in due course, I just kind of gave up. And I kind of became suicidal and, uh, I was at my wits end. It just didn't seem like anything I ever did would stick. I pursued all kinds of different spiritual avenues. You know, if you go to the recovery programs like AA and NA, they have a very pluralistic, um, concept of God. And, and they do that so that their doors are open to people of all faiths and people with all different beliefs so they can get sober and I understand why they do that. But what I found for me is that if they leave it up to me to define God, then God ends up being me. Um, and that's not a good thing. And, you know, if I'm God, then, it, you know, there's there's really anything goes. And, uh, you know, they, I'm not saying that the recovery program is advocating making yourself God. I'm just saying that pluralistic openness always, you know, led me to deify myself. Um because I just didn't have anything objective, really, to base truth on. Um, and I started, you know, if you're pursuing kind of Eastern ideas about God and you're sitting around meditating and thinking about God, and um, it, it really just becomes whatever pops into your head. And I also believe that there was a, a demonic element going on there, too, that, that influenced me. Because, I mean, like I said, even after years of uh, clean time, uh, I would, I would, I would resort back to the same behaviors and end up even worse than I was when I started. So, you know, that, that progressed. Um, you know, and I want to just, I'm going to add another thing that, uh, and I'm saying this mainly in case there's someone out, else out there that has this going on. Um, you know, during all that drug use, um, I, I was an IV drug user near the end. And I was using really hard drugs and I, I contracted hepatitis C, which is a fatal liver disease. It doesn't kill everyone. A lot of people have it that don't know they have it, but, but I got it and you know, it, it can kill you. And they, and they told me that, you know, I already had liver damage and you know, the prognosis wasn't all that great. And, um, that just kind of made me more hopeless. And, um, I just, you know, I just didn't seem to care anymore because I, you know, I probably wasn't going to live another five years. I had friends that are in prison. I have friends that are dead that, that the people that I used to run with. Um, but you know, so this is about the state of mind I'm in when, you know, I had gone down. I got gone down again. I had started using, I was in bad shape. Um, I lost most everything I had. And you know, they, they say there's an old, old bluegrass song that says the only two people that never gave up on me were mama and Jesus. And, um, I moved back into my mom's house at like 35 and, uh, didn't have a penny to my name. And, um, 
you know, she had started going to the, this local Baptist church in town, uh, after her and my dad split up and, um, you know, it, she seemed to be getting something out of it and it was changing her life. And, uh, I decided that I would go with her just to make her happy since I'd moved back in the house. And I, I didn't expect it to be anything to it. I mean, the kind of guy I was, I was the kind of guy that would confront the preachers on the corner and just get up and argue with them. I mean, that's the kind of person I was. I was, I was openly opposed to a lot, a lot of Christian thinking, especially the whole thing with rock music that went on in the eighties. I, I would debate those guys that, um, you know, talked about how rock music was demonic and I would, I would, I'd love to get in confrontations with them at rock concerts and stuff. The guys that would be in the parking lot. And, um, but anyway, I went to my mom's church, um, just, uh, just on a lark to make her happy. And, uh, something, something, um, Extraordinary happened. Um, the, the pastor, his name, David Horner, he was preaching right to me as if he was reading my mind. It, it really <laughs> felt <laughs> all right. I mean, he, he started asking rhetorical questions in the, in the sermon, like, who are you to tell God that your life is no longer worth living? I mean, he, and, you know, he, I remember that vividly. You know, and, and God began to call me. I mean, through this sermon when I'm, I'm sitting in this pew and there, you know, there's like hundreds of people around me, but it's like he was looking right into me and talking to me. And, and I realized that I needed Jesus, but I wasn't really sure what to believe. You know, I, I really didn't know anything about the Bible at that point in my life. Um, so I went to a, a Sunday school class and there was a young seminary student. Um, and uh, he was there and I met him. And when I got home, he called to welcome me to the class and ask me if I had had any questions. And I responded, yeah, I have a lot of questions. <laughs> and, you know, he offered to come by the house. And uh, I was really skeptical. And, you know, here's how hostile in my mind I was. I, I literally thought, you know, here's this guy. He's, in, he's probably in his third, fourth year of seminary. He grew up as a Christian his whole life. And um, I thought that, my questions and my skeptical objections would end up making him question his faith and that he might even not be a Christian anymore after he got, after I got done with him. That's exactly, that's what I was thinking in my mind when he started coming over to my house, that I was going to deconvert him. But, and uh, I mean, that's how arrogant and egotistical and, and, and just, you know, opposed to God that I was in my thinking. Um, now I'll tell you what though, this guy, Dennis, he he was in Wake Forest, which is a good 20 miles from my house. That's where the seminary is. He drove over to my house every Thursday afternoon for like over six months, every Thursday. And we would talk about the Bible and, and go through the Bible. I mean, for for no reason that I could figure out, you know, it, it was it was completely blowing my mind that he even did this. But um, you know, I know today that God sent this guy, Dennis, to witness to me because he was really uniquely qualified to break through my skepticism. I mean, I just had a, a very cynical attitude. I didn't trust anyone. Um, but Dennis was a very unusual person. Um, see, I was expecting to see hypocrisy in his character. I, I, I was looking for an ulterior motive for him to visit me. You know, the best I could figure, I was just a notch on his little evangelism 
holster, you know. Um, I, you know, I really thought that my brilliant objections might cause him to question his faith. Um, but he was this really mild mannered, polite guy. I mean, he, he, he received Christ when he was like six years old. Um, Dennis was holy. Okay. He was really set apart. And I, I really haven't met anyone else like him since then. Um, even at church. I mean, he, the people like him are rare. Okay. He was 32 years old at that time. He, he was a virgin. I mean, and he said this to me and that, that blew my mind. He'd never been on a date. Okay. Because he promised the Lord when he was like 10 that he wasn't going to act like he saw his older brothers acting, that he was going to wait until he was ready to get married and then he would start dating. All right. You know, so he was like, well, you know, I'm about to finish seminary. So now it's time to start looking for a wife. So the class I met him in was a singles adult class at that church. So he had just joined the singles class for the first time in his life to start thinking about dating because he w- he was about ready for ministry. I mean, and, and this was real. I mean, I never knew that people like this existed. I mean, this blew my mind. Um, but yet he wasn't legalistic or judgmental um, at all. Dennis would wake up at four o'clock in the morning to pray for a list of people. He, he kept a list of all the people he met in his life that he had evangelized and, 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 you know, had, had ministered to and talked to. He kept, you know, he had a list with 50, 100 people on there that he prayed for. He got up at 4 a.m. and prayed for all this whole list. I mean, years later, I still keep in touch with him. He's out in California now, but he's, he, he would tell me, I pray for you every day. And, and I knew that he meant it. You know, it, it wasn't a platitude. So I, I didn't have a category in my mind for this level of genuineness. Okay. I, I, I couldn't debunk Dennis and it didn't have anything to do with apologetics or, you know, any facts that he threw at me. It was his character. It was the way that I saw Jesus modeled in him. All right. He, he didn't convince me with words. You know, he, he reflected Christ and that led me to Jesus. You know, Dennis knew you know, the condition I was in, I, I didn't really lie to him about, about it. He, he didn't judge me. Um, he didn't judge me. I relapsed into drug use while I was knowing him a couple times. And, and he, he loved me like I was. And, you know, and, you know, I told you I had this idea in my head that I might, you know, make him question his faith and, and all this. But at the end, it was me that was broken down. Um, you know, and, and I, and there, there came a point where I just started crying and, um, and talk and, and tell Dennis that I, I really needed Jesus and I, and I really wanted what he had. And, you know, I still had a lot of questions and objections in my mind, but I was willing to set those aside and invite Christ into my life. OK, at that time, I was still extremely depressed and, and sick. And, you know, I had the liver disease thing going on. But I tell you, when when I asked Jesus to come into my life, that the moment that I did that, now God bless me, I don't know that he does this for everyone, but I had a sense of comfort and ease come over me that was undeniably supernatural. I mean, I felt bad. I felt, you know, I just didn't feel good. All of a sudden, I just had, it was almost like I had done some drugs or something. I mean, literally the Holy Spirit came on me and it it changed the way I felt. I had an emotional experience. Um, and it, it's something that I can't forget. And I can't deny. Um, and I'm glad that the Lord gave me that. It's something that I can sort of hang on to and remember that, yeah, there was a definite moment where everything changed. And, and I felt it. And I don't have a naturalistic explanation for it at all. I mean, it's just, there's just not one. 
Um, you know, the biggest change is that I'm a completely different person. Um, today I'm completely free from the addiction and disease and I found a, a wonderful Christian wife. Um, I play in the praise band and I even teach that, that, that singles life class where I first met Dennis and now I teach that class. Okay. Today Dennis is a pastor and he has a wife and three kids. Now I'm in seminary <laughs> because I, I want to defend the truth and, and help skeptics like my former self answer some of these hard questions that, that I thought were so, so difficult and insurmountable for Christianity. But, hmm. you know, it's the grace of God and it, it's, it's the love of God that, that compels me. And, you know, I saw that modeled in someone else's character and that's really what convinced me. Okay, it, you know, I love apologetics and that's my calling and that's what I do, but that's not re really won me over. Um, now, how do, how do I know Christianity is true today? I mean, I was teaching, teaching a class just a couple of weeks ago and told this to the class. I can give you really good arguments and really good evidence and, um, you know, good philosophical reasons to believe in the existence of God, good historical reasons to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. But if you ask me, for me personally, like if I if I experience doubt or any questioning in my mind, what what is it that makes me hold on to my faith? And I'll tell you the truth is the difference in me. OK, my character the things that I value, the way I behave, the way I think, okay? I didn't do anything to change those things. Now, when I was going to AA and NA meetings, they have all these steps and, you know, things that you do. You work with your sponsor, and, you know, and those are supposed to help you change. Um, I quit going to that. You know, once I, once I, I got saved, and I just started going to church and learning the Bible, and I quit going to recovery meetings, I quit... I quit all of that and I really just turned it over to God and I don't recognize myself. If I look back even five years, um, the changes have been radical and um, I don't think the same way. I mean, the, the kind of cravings and lusts that I had back then are just completely alien to me. I mean, those things disgust me. They don't tempt me. Um, and I don't have any good reason to tell you why that happened. I didn't do anything. Um, so when I have doubt, when I wonder, you know, if you ask for me personally, why is Christianity true? Because it's it's changed who I am so much that I know that it's supernatural. I know that it's God has done it. I didn't do anything to deserve it. I mean, all I did was try to be faithful to to study his word and go to church and, you know, and, and half the time in the beginning, I wasn't even completely, um, you know, authentic in that, but it changed me. <laughs> Let me talk about that. Cause I, I totally agree. That's exactly what I hold on to as well. Just that's my, that's the best evidence that I have is the, the work of my heart and the, the changed life that I have. Could you talk a little bit about that process? I know a lot of people have questions about that, that, sanctification process or the time after you were saved between getting to there, you know, did it happen instantly? How, how did that work in your life? No, it, it didn't happen instantly. And it, it was a struggle. I mean, at the beginning, I mean, like I said, there, there was times after I got saved that, that I even relapsed and, you know, and Dennis, Dennis was coming over one of those Thursday afternoons. And I remember, you know, I'd done some speed and stuff and I literally had demons. I, I heard voices 
I mean, I mean, I've, I've told other people, I didn't really make say it at the beginning, but I mean, when I first showed up at church, I was demonized. I mean, I have no doubt about it. I uh, had, had voices telling me to do things that I, I really didn't even want to do. I mean, I knew that it was outside of me. It, it was, it was very, um, evil. Okay. There were things being suggested to me that, that, that are, that are ugly. Um, and I didn't act on them, but, uh, there was something pushing me, uh, definitely. And, and I know, I don't know, I don't believe I was possessed, but I was definitely demonized. And I remember Dennis coming. I didn't, I forgot he was coming. It was one of those Thursdays where he was, he was coming over that afternoon. And, you know, this was, um, I don't, I don't actually, I don't remember if this was actually, actually after I got saved or right before it, but I remember Dennis coming over and I was just crying on the deck and, you know, hearing voices and stuff. And it was like, it, it was bizarre. And, you know, I look back on that and it, uh, it astounds me how great the grace of God that, that I'm here. But I mean, okay, there was that point where I converted and I struggled. I mean, I, I've heard people say this little thing where, you know, there's, probably nothing that I've ever let go of that doesn't have my claw marks all over it. <laughs> okay. I mean, there was a, a lot of those sins and things are hard to, to, to let go of, you know? And as I started making an effort to, I mean, the, the main thing to do is to, to confess it and pray about it. Um, I can't, you know, give you a 12 step program to, for, to sanctification. Okay. I don't think it's that simple, but some of those things that they do in the recovery programs are, are, do work. And a lot of them are actually based on biblical principles. Um, so I'm not going to completely diss those, those things. Like some of the things in the 12 steps are actually good ideas. Um, and you know, maybe I did use some of that wisdom that I picked up in those meetings. Um, you know, one of their steps you know, it says that you, you turn your will and life over to the care of a higher power as you understand it. Now, that's that pluralism part. But, I mean, if, if you could just get that pluralism part out and define, you know, that you're talking to the God of the Bible, you know, through Jesus Christ as that mediator, then uh, then I think it's a pretty sound program. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but that that's really, I mean, that's the, it's a, an essential thing is to have the right God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, so, you know, I, you know, the recovery programs do work for people and they just didn't really work for me because that the flexibility and all the pluralism and the new age stuff, that's all there. Most, most of the people that I knew there were into new age stuff and that's where I would go because, you know, it's, a, it's a lot easier to have a God that doesn't really care about your sex life or, you know, if in all these other issues. But I mean, sin is a lot different than addiction because sin is all pervasive. It, it, it touches every area of your life. You know, a lot of people in recovery programs are happy just to be sober and, and then it makes them a better liar. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but uh, I'm not, I'm sorry for this and that too much, but it just, it really didn't work for me. But what has worked for me is I got involved in a local church. Okay. And I started hanging out with Christians. Okay. Now, I've recently heard you talk about how you had kind of avoided that for a while, and then you, you started doing it. And I was really glad to hear you say that. Um, I was one of those people that was really, you know, skeptical about Christians and talked about how hypocritical they were. And, you know, people at church were all hypocrites. And a funny thing is, one time I said that, and somebody at church says, yeah, you know, we are all hypocrites, but we always have room for one more. Why don't you come on down? <laughs> 
and, and you know, and the truth is, is that if you're not a hypocrite, your standards are too low. <laughs> because we can't, and none of us can live up to, to the values that we should have. You know, the values that Jesus, you know, expresses to us, none of us do live up to those. So in a sense, if, if, if you really are a Christian, you have to be a hypocrite in, in a sense, because you're still a sinner. Um, so, but getting involved in a local church, I mean, I, I didn't necessarily like those people at first, and I didn't think they liked me, because I mean, here I am, you know, somebody that's been into all this weird stuff and in the occult and like, you know, I think they were afraid of me, some of them, and they probably should have been at first. But, uh, you know, getting involved there, it gave me a group of people that kind of modeled, um, what Christians act like that they were ahead of me, you know, something, something to look at. And like somebody like Dennis kind of discipled me. So it's important to have Christian friends, okay, and have somebody that is further along in their Christian walk that's willing to disciple you, okay? And a sound, a church that has, you know, basically sound doctrine. I mean, that, that's important. And that could be a problem if you don't know what sound doctrine is. Um, but, you know, I think that you need to have contact with other Christians is a really huge thing. Um, so I got involved in a life class. You know, and that's the one that I was talking about where Dennis was and, and the one that I teach now. And, you know, and it's, it's being accountable to other people. Um, and, and that's one thing that they do in the recovery groups. But it, you can get that at church and you can get that, you know, just through Christian fellowship. So, I mean, that's essential. And, and it's learning to be able to be honest with people and to admit when you fail. I mean, the problem is if you're not accountable to anyone and you're, you're kind of off and you're isolated on your own, you know, you don't have anybody to confront you or, or to, um, you know, to, to tell you when you're, when you're messing up. And you don't also, you also don't have anybody to pray for you or to help you. Um, and I think that I had a lot of people praying for me, um, that whole time. I mean, people knew what my problems were. I mean, the one thing that I, I probably did right even when I showed up and I, I was not completely genuine was that I did tell them where I was. I mean, I was desperate and I think a lot of it, you know, comes from being desperate. You know, that's that God responds to, uh, to someone that, that knows that they're lost. I mean, he opposes the proud, but he, he will come and meet you where you're at, no matter how far down you are. Um, you know, he, Christ came for the ungodly. He came to save sinners. So, you know, that, that is the, the big message that I want people to get from their testimony. And I'm hoping, you know, that there's somebody out there listening that has had some of these problems or, or has had, um, you know, maybe the hepatitis C. And, and you know, just to, to, to tie that up, you know, about five years into my, my, my conversion, a friend of mine said, you know, why don't you call, he actually works at, at the Duke lab. He says, why don't you call over at, at UNC? They're doing a study on, on this new drug and maybe you can get into this, this study. And, um, I didn't get into that study, but I called them and they actually got me into a program there. I didn't have to pay a dime, not, not one penny. And I got like $50,000 worth of treatment, uh, with interferon and, um, it wiped out the hepatitis C completely. I'm completely clean of it now. It's gone, and, and my liver's fine, and I'm completely healthy. Um, that doesn't happen 
for hardly anybody. And, and a lot of people can't even afford that treatment. And it just, it was pretty miraculous the way that happened. I, I don't really have an explanation for that, uh, you know, other than the, the grace of God. I mean, he, I'm completely clear and free of that. Now, I wanted to share something about that time. That interferon treatment that I was on, it makes you extremely sick. It's like having the flu for six months. I was on it for six months. And um, this is when God really called me to ministry. And now this is uh, what happened is during that time, I, you know, I was so sick. I couldn't really work and I didn't have much to do. So I was on my computer all the time and I started going to ATS. All right. And that's where I met Ashley Dickinson. That, you know, as a friend of both of ours who had the divine evidence website and I started getting involved with kind of mixing it up with the atheists at, at ATS. And, and, and I think the, you were there during that same time, right? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. And so that's really what started getting me into more of the, the apologetic stuff was during that time I was kind of locked in my room. I felt bad and, um, you know, and God started working on me. Um, through a lot of Ashley's work, you know, I started seeing, you know, all this, all these good reasons to believe in the resurrection and, you know, a lot of facts and stuff like that that I didn't know. And so I had this whole six month period where I just absorbed all that and I started getting it. And God really called me during that time. And, um, that's when I really got a passion for apologetics. And, uh, you know, from that point, I, as soon as I, I got better and I was, you know, had a clean bill of health and all that, I, I started, um, I finished up my undergraduate degree at Liberty Online, which is a great resource. You can actually, you know, do your college degree on the internet. And, um, I took all religion courses and Bible courses. And, um, that gave me a, a pretty good foundation. Um, and that all came, you know, during that recovery time. So today I think I'm going to, I'm going to have a master's degree here in three weeks. Um, oh, so cool. <laughs> I, that's been a process, but, uh, <laughs> It's, um, that all happened through that, that time of recovery. That's, that's when really God started working on me with that. And I really got started getting into Michael Heiser's work and, um, you know, into the, the intellectual aspects of, of Christianity and, and found out how intellectually rigorous that Christianity can be. You know, I used to think, it, like I said, that it was nonsense, that it was for gullible people. But then I started encountering people like Dr. Heiser and William Lane Craig, you know, and, I realized that, you know, there's actually, there's, there's very good reasons to believe it. And once you really sort of start to comprehend the worldview, it, it is the worldview that makes the most sense of the reality that we see. Um, so, well, so, well, let's, yeah, let's transition into that, uh, with, uh, with your website now, Logos Apolo, uh, Apologia, I guess is how it's said. I say apologia. Is it? Okay. Yeah. Cool. I mean, the Greek word, it's, yeah, it's the Greek word where apologetics comes from, but yeah. It means defense, to give a defense. But yeah, I think apologia is closer to the the correct pronunciation. Well, what is your sort of what's your vision for the blog or or and the videos? Your videos too. What, what where where are you at with that, and where do you want to go with it? Well, you know, those the videos started. I had a different channel called Big Whammy Rocks or something. That's I started that during that time that I was on ATS during that six months when I was so sick, I started making YouTube videos, but, um, and I kind of, I kind of switched off to that channel and started the, the logos apologia YouTube channel and started trying to elevate the quality of my videos and, and more the thinking behind them. You know, I, some of the stuff that 
I, I did on the other channel was a little wacky, but <laughs> I started to get a little more educated about the arguments I was using and stuff. So, I, so I changed channels, but, um, you know, I, the main vision that I had, you know, when I, when I started the, the Logos Apologia channel was, to, you know, just to provide evidential arguments for Christianity, um, to, to show that there are good reasons to believe it, that, it, you know, it's not just based on feelings. You know, there, there's this whole, you know, a lot of my response was to the new atheist movement. And that's what I encountered over at ATS, you know, during that six months as I ran into all these hardcore atheists and, uh, you know, and they challenged me. It, it, you know, at first when that happened, I, um, I questioned my faith. I said, well, maybe, you know, I mean, thoughts would get through my mind like, well, you know, you were down and out and maybe you, you know, maybe this just made you feel better. You know, maybe, maybe this is just an emotional, um, panacea, you know, that, that helped you recover. And, you know, and so that's, it, it they made me question myself. And so I, I really dismantled my faith and started taking it apart and looking at why do I believe what I, what I wanted, what I believe, you know, and that was a, that's an important process, you know, and I think that a, a lot of Christians maybe need to do that. Um, because, you know, if you just grow up believing it because your parents told them it's true and that, that'll work for you. I mean, and it is true. So that's fine. But, <laughs> you know, if you don't really know why, when you get in a bind or you get put in a corner by, by a, by a skilled skeptic, you know, you're in trouble. Um, and I'm glad that that happened to me because, um, I really did start thinking through it carefully. And then I started reading books by like Francis Schaeffer and, um, I started finding, you know, some things out learning about philosophy. And, uh, you know, if I, I watched that debate with John Lennox and Richard Dawkins and John Lennox just dismantled him. And, um, it, it, it was so impressive to me. And then John Lennox actually came through my town and I met him and he spoke at my church. And, um, you know, here's somebody that, you know, is, is a mathematician that works at Oxford University, you know, he teaches advanced math, but he's as he's as smart as anyone in the world, and and he he wholeheartedly, passionately believes Christianity. I mean, you know, so the, you know the whole threat, this whole lie that Christianity is some kind of um, intellectual uh, suicide is just not true. And um, it, it turns out that I, you know I really enjoy this kind of academic stuff um i didn't really wasn't really into it in my younger life because i think i was too enamored with the rock star lifestyle and, and the drugs and all that drug me away from it but i really do kind of enjoy the academic um environment and uh, i've been thriving in it yeah you've got a lot of uh you if uh, on the website there is a wide range of topics um really it seems like you're just hitting whatever whatever becomes relevant to you at that at that time so it's a really diverse selection of uh research uh projects and stuff like that uh, most recently i was happy to see a lot of stuff on about hermeneutics and and uh eisegesis as opposed to exegesis and stuff like that which i think can be really the basis of a lot of error both in christian and non uh, and sort of cultic kind of views so um you want to talk about that real quick certainly and you know one thing is that, you know, I am in, I'm in seminary and a lot of the stuff that you see on the website is a reflection of the courses that I'm taking at the okay. time. All right. <laughs> so what I do is, you know, like I'll have to write, you know, a post about, I'll have to write something and I'll, I'll just kind of modify it and turn it into a, into a blog post. And cool. that way I kind of killed two birds with one stone <laughs> and, 
the rest of the world gets a little bit of benefit from my educational experience as well. <laughs> so, you know, that, that's, that's part of it. So have you been yeah. taking a hermeneutics class as well? It is right now. Yeah. And I'm, yeah, talk, talk about that. I mean, I've never been, to, I mean, I've taken, I've listened to a lot of hermeneutics classes and, uh, and I find that there's sort of like two hermeneutics can be super easy, kind of like, uh, just a no brainer in, in a lot of ways, but it's, you would, but unfortunately it's not a no brainer. Um, but I'm sure it can get a lot more technical. Yeah. That if, if all Christians would take a hermeneutics class, we could get rid of 90% of the heresy and cults that, that occur, I think. Maybe you should define it for everybody first. Yeah. Well, hermeneutics is just a, just a big long word that it's this, you know, interpreting the Bible is really what it means. It's, it's the art and science of biblical interpretation, something like that. But, um, you know, it really comes down to, um, what determines meaning in a text. Now, you know, I think the way that I would like to communicate about this is, you know, you know, I'm, let's, let's say, you know, this thing with postmodernism and modernism, these philo- philosophical ideas, I, I'm just going to lay a little groundwork, you know, postmodernism basically is the idea that you have your truth and I have mine and they can both still be true, even if they're contradictions. Now, I hope that everyone sees the other bankruptcy of that idea. Um, it, it's, it, you know, it's something that's rampant in our culture. And a lot of people think that way and don't even know it. But I mean, truth is what matches reality. Okay. There is a thing called objective truth. And, um, you know, Robbie Zacharias has the great little one liner when he's talking about the people in India. You know, they talk to postmodernism. He says, but yeah, they still look both ways before they cross the street, don't they? Right. <laughs> it's either the bus or you. And, you know, nobody's a postmodernist when it comes down to something that's important to them. Um, you know, they might do that as a way to not take a stand on something. It, it's, it's really just a way to not make a decision or to, to, to not take a stand. And, you know, and people try to do that with with religious ideas well you have their religion and that and you have theirs and they can both be true no they can't they 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 have contradictory um ideas okay well a lot of people look at the bible and they look at you know a verse in the bible and they go what does that say to you okay (laughs) what does that mean to you and then they go to the next person what does that mean to you okay that's not legitimate all right the bible has a meaning and it's it's not necessarily what it means to you, all right? And, and the the real, you know, the core of hermeneutics is that there's an objective meaning there. Now, we're not saying that that we always get it or that any person has the sole, you know, market on the truth. But the idea is there is a truth. It does. It has an objective meaning. And the goal of a proper hermeneutic or exegesis is to find out what that is, okay? And, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a process. And, you know, one thing that, you know, I think it's essential that a lot of people need to to think about is that we're dealing with a set of ancient documents. All right. You know, the New Testament is, is, is 2000 years old. The Old Testament is, is much older. Um, and so we have this huge gap, um, in worldview and, and culture and, um, and language between the original text and us and people don't really quite understand the depth of that sometimes. Now, some of it, some things will translate directly into to us, but some of them 
are buried. You know, there's a lot of stuff that if you don't have some knowledge of history of, of what the first century is like, you don't really even understand what they're talking about. And it's one of those things you don't understand how much you don't know and, until you start to study it. And when you start to study, you find out that you don't know a lot. Um, and, and that's where, you know, a lot of people don't think that, that they don't see the problem because they're not even aware of the problem. Um, you know, some of the things that you read in scripture don't, I mean, they, they sound one way in English, but if you understand what, what the, the first century context was in the culture, sometimes it's not quite what you think it is. And, and I'm not saying that you can't just read the Bible and get something out of it. Of course you can. Of course you can. But when you, when it, when it gets down to fine points of doctrine and things like that, it's really important to, to understand the exegetical process and, and what this hermeneutics thing is all about. Yeah. I, now, I couldn't agree more with that. And I would say, uh, just, just as a, a, an addendum to that, that I think that it's almost as if that where everybody errs, where, where cults or, or aberrant sort of doctrine, it's amazing how, um, the Bible has already taken care of that. It's already addressed that issue. It's already solved it in triplicate. And as long as you are applying a good hermeneutic to it, then you can find all, that the Bible has always done that, but the problem is a lot of times, and in every case, I'd say where somebody is, has an aberrant view, it's that they took what the Bible clearly says and they say, it doesn't actually say that. <laughs> it says this. And when when you cross that Rubicon of saying, well, yes, it says that, but what it means is blank, then that's when the the error comes in. That's why hermeneutics is so important. Um, and uh and I've got just so much stuff here that I'm interested in on your on your site. We could go a lot of different places here, um, but I think we talked earlier. Uh, I could read down a list here of some different things to to hit. I, I would like to try to hit some other things like uh, Stephen Hawking or the resurrection, the the Jonah thing, um, and then I kind of want to ask some, or, or maybe even Bart Ehrman, and then maybe talk about some, uh, you know, just sort of apologetics in general, the sort of the state of apologetics. Any of those things. Let's talk about the resurrection. Okay. That, I mean, that's a big one. I mean, that that's, you know, if, if Christ has not been raised, then our faith in vain, and we're to be pitied above all folks, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, you know, that is the foundation of, of what this faith is about. I mean, the gospel is the resurrection. Would you agree? Definitely. I mean, that if you if you look at the 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that that is where you see the most condensed um, version of the gospel, uh, verses three through seven. That that's a creed that it probably dates back to the very time of the crucifixion, and scholars have really good reasons to to see that that was an oral tradition that Paul included, and um, you know it, it, we can date it back because I mean it, the language that they use, um, and you know we we know when First Corinthians was written. In the early 50s AD, and uh, Paul's talking about, I delivered to you what I first received. Okay, and we can figure that he received it around the time that he, um, around right after Galatians was written. There's some good t- hints in the text there. Paul probably went out in the desert for a couple of years there, and you know I don't know what happened, but uh, a lot of people think that maybe Jesus appeared to him there. 
and schooled him during his formative time there. We, we don't really know. But Paul says he kind of escaped to the desert. I mean, he was missing for about two years of time there. And uh, when he came back, he had the whole Old Testament figured out as far as where Christ was in it. And, and he was just a powerhouse. Uh, I think Christ, that was his time in the desert. You know, it's kind of like my time when I was on the hepatitis C treatment. It was my time in the desert. It was kind of like Moses in the mountains. I mean, it was, it was a formative period. But I mean, so that, that chapter is huge. But I mean, the argument that, that I, I learned on the resurrection that I think is really powerful. And I made a video on YouTube where I challenged the skeptics to respond to five facts. And I, I learned this from Gary Habermas and Mike Lacona. They have a book called The, uh, the Case for the Resurrection of Jesus. And uh, I studied that book really carefully. And, and basically what Gary Habermas's argument is, Gary Habermas has cataloged um, things that are written about the resurrection of Jesus. And he keeps a list and a bibliography. And he's literally got 20, 30,000 sources on there. He's written every time that someone writes an article or a scholarly book or anything about the resurrection, Gary Habermas catalogs it. What they said, what, what their stance is on these things. And he's done that since the early seventies. So, I mean, he's got this huge list and, and he's very, you know, meticulous about doing that. What he discovered. Now, this is atheists. You know, this is, you know, skeptical scholars, evangelical scholars, but in the majority of them are going to be non-believers because most of the people that write in an academic setting are not evangelical Christians. But he discovered that if you look at what all these scholars, all these really learned people that study the text, what they believe and what they write about the resurrection, there's five facts that appear from that list that they all agree on. Okay, and those five facts are that Jesus died by crucifixion. The second one is that the disciples really believed that Jesus appeared to them. Okay, not that he did, but that that they believed it. Okay. The third fact is that. The conversion of Paul, who was, you know, a persecutor of the church. Paul converted. They all agree on that. The conversion of Jesus' brother James. If you read the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus' family did not, you know, did not believe him. They didn't believe that he was a prophet. Uh, they thought he was crazy. You can, that's in the Gospel. So they all agree that James converted because we have James end up being a, a leader in the Jerusalem church and he even appears in Josephus. And they all agree that the tomb was empty. So you got these five facts. Jesus died. The disciples believed that he appeared to him. Paul converted. James converted. There was an empty tomb. So, you know, even your atheist scholars, they all believe that. Now, so if these five facts are, are something that, that they all agree on, um, you have to be able to explain away those five facts with an alternative thing. Other, I mean, if you believe that Jesus didn't die from the dead, how can you explain these five widely agreed on facts apart from him raising from the dead. Well, the thing that's really interesting is that you can't. <laughs> um, and the book really will take you through how, how that works. But, I mean, skeptics will come up with all kinds of reasons to explain away this evidence. Um, you know, somebody stole the body, the swoon theory. But, I mean, all these theories, you can demonstrate that they fail to explain all five facts. They might explain two or three of them. They might, you know, they might explain four of them. But there's no alternative skeptical theory that explains all five um, coherently. 
And, and that's the important thing. I mean, they, people can claim that it does, but you can demonstrate that their arguments are incoherent. And so it, it's a really powerful argument, and I was really impressed with it. So I, I threw it up there on YouTube, and I, and I challenged all the atheists to, to come up with skeptical theories. And, uh, you know, the best one, I would give them a book. And I had two books that I was going to give away. I gave away um, the case. I, I, what did I give away? Let's see. I'm trying to remember now. Um I gave away two books. I gave away, I think I gave away the case for the resurrection and I don't know. I gave away another book. Oh, the case for the real Jesus by Lee Strobel. That's one where he goes into the whole Jesus myth thing and all that. I gave away that one. Oh, I gave away, um, Anthony Flew's There is a God, mm. the, his conversion story mm. because he, he's kind of a, I figured an atheist might actually get more out of that book than right. anyone else. So I gave away that those two books were the prizes and, uh, uh, you know, and, I, and at the end, I picked two winners. One was a, you know, one was a Christian who actually defended the resurrection, and the other was a deist who uh, who denied it. And he he came up with the best story, you know, trying to explain away the evidence. And basically, his story was that necromancers stole the body. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but at least he tried to account for all five facts. Most of the other atheists on YouTube that that tried to explain it, they didn't they didn't account for all five facts. They're, they're, and so they're you know, their their arguments ended up being coherent. But a lot of them just kind of made fun of me or, you know, they didn't really handle the evidence. They didn't they didn't engage the arguments at all. They they just, you know, and some people tried for the swoon theory. And it, it, a lot of it, it's kind of interesting because you start to see the absurdities that people will embrace to not believe. Um, you know, we, we, we get accused of believing absurd things. And, you know, it is pretty fantastic to believe that someone rose from the dead. Um yeah, you have to. We, you know, I admit that. Um, <laughs> that's what makes it awesome. Um, <laughs> but you know, their explanations invariably fail, and um, it's it really increases your faith when you, when you see that when when you, when you see how intellectually rigorous that Christianity can be. Um, it 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 gives you reason to believe, and it, it gives you reasons to um, to want to honor God with your life. I mean, it's it's not easy to offer your life as an as a living sacrifice. You know, it's it's not easy, you know, to to submit to authority. Um, you know, a lot of my instincts are against that. But you know, when I when I'm really conscious that this is real, you know, and I and I have good reasons to believe it, it it's a lot easier for me to 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 do those things. So, but well, let me uh, let me hit you up with some general kind of questions about i don't want to sort of say what's the what's the most important thing to deal with but there's so many different avenues like you know the creation evolution thing or the you know basically the intelligent design thing as well Mm -hmm. um or is it just the new atheism thing in general or is it uh, bart ehrman and questioning questioning the authenticity or of the text or whatnot what what is it just this perfect storm of stuff is that why we need to be vigilant and what do you think that the state of apologetics uh good apologetics is today are we in a good position to to um help with some of these things well the the state of apologetics is 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 good and it's getting better and you know what i give the new atheists all the credit for that um and and i'm really grateful for them um i kind of like atheists and i'll tell you why um I'm a lot more sympathetic to atheists than I am postmodern people and, and new agers. And here's why. I mean, atheists 
believe in reason and, and they believe in logic and, and they think coherently most of the time. I mean, I mean, like I said, sometimes sin will, will cause a lot of people to, to, to say nonsensical things and a lot of atheists do. But in general, you know, they, they honor reason and, and they, they, they honor the, the, the idea of having a, an argument and a debate and, um, you know, they will admit when something's true and false that this, that I can deal with that a lot better than I can deal with someone that says you have your truth and I have mine because you can't discuss anything then. <laughs> There's just no re, it's, it just, it's, everything becomes nonsense. If you can embrace a contradiction, then there's no point in even having a discussion. Um, so at least atheists don't intentionally do that. I mean, they don't knowingly do that. And most of them are at least trying to be intellectually honest. I've found that. I mean, I'm not saying they are, but I'm saying they try to, and they, they at least honor those concepts. Um, so the atheists threw down a gauntlet, you know, with all the God delusion and all that stuff that happened. And, a lot of people have, 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 have stood up, you know, to stand in the gap. And, um, it's kind of created a new wave of apologetics. And a lot of Christians are studying philosophy. You know, it's really put people like William Lane Craig into the spotlight, um, who's just an amazingly, uh, brilliant person. Um, and, you know, a sincere Christian believer who has multiple PhDs, um, in theology and philosophy. And, uh, you know, uh, just a world class philosopher and thinker. And, you know, in philosophy, there's, there's a man named Alvin Plantinga. Now, if you're not familiar with philosophy and you want to see the very peak, the very best of Christian critical thinking and philosophy, look into Alvin Plantinga. Amazing person. Um, so there's just, there's a really like a renaissance in Christian apologetics. And, uh, you'll see that. Um, and it's apex through those people. Now, on the popular level, you know, you see Lee Strobel has done a lot of work to popularize apologetics. Um, and Josh McDowell is probably one of the earlier people that started it. And, and you know, there's a lot of his work that's available. I, I, I like Lee Strobel's work a lot. Um, I, I read most all of his books when I was when I was first getting into it. And it's a great place to start. I mean, if you start reading books by people like William Lane Craig, then it's, it's quite a bit more advanced. His book, Reasonable Faith, is probably more on a graduate school kind of level. But he's got one now called On Guard. Um, that's a really good book. And I think it's written more, you know, for the layman in a popular level. Um, there's another thing that I'm doing, and it's probably fueling a lot of the, the new wave of apologetics. Biola University in California. And it, Biola actually stands for the Bible Institute of Los Angeles. It's a really interesting school. It actually was one of the first schools that started the new wave of fundamentalism in the 1900s. Now, today it's considered like this um, kind of cosmopolitan mecca of evangelical Christian thought. But it really was at the beginning of the fundamentalist movement at the turn of the century. It's kind of interesting. The, the Bible Institute of Los Angeles. But they have a world-class apologetics program there. Now, it's pretty expensive. So I... I I, had, I didn't attend school there. I actually went to, to just a, um, to Liberty Seminary, and then I'm also going to be going to Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, a lot, a lot more affordable and um, closer to where I live. But they have an apologetic certificate at Biola, 
And what that is is a lot of lecture audits, and anybody can can sign up for that. And it's like a correspondence course. They send you like a ton of CDs and um, some tests and things that you take. But uh, I've, I'm working through that to get a certificate from Biola. And that really exposes you to a lot of the cutting edge and apologetics, people like J.P. Moreland and Craig Hazen and uh, Greg Kokel. Um, and those people are, are people that I really look up to and listen to. Greg Kokel is probably my mentor in apologetics right now. He, his, his website is Stand to Reason, and he's got a, a podcast and a radio show that I listen to religiously. Um, I think a lot of Greg, he's really helped me to refine my thinking. Um, now, I think I kind of forgot what the first part of the question was, but something about what I think the important issues. Yeah, the important issues. Um, you mentioned the creation, evolution, intelligent design thing, right? Right. Yep. Yeah. Well, that is where I started. Um, I, I actually did. I went to school, you know, during some of that time at the beginning of my, my Christian walk, I, I was thinking about going back to school to be an engineer. Um, and, and I had a little run at doing computer science and stuff for a while. I actually did really well uh, at, at NC State in the engineering. I took all the calculus and chemistry and physics and and pretty much, you know, I made really good grades and all that. But it, that, it was – God kind of convert changed me into this mode that I'm in now after that. I, I actually started that career and changed mode and went to seminary. But um, So I, I had a really strong science background in recent history. Where I took all that stuff, and um, I was really interested in how to reconcile scientific truth with the Bible. Um, that that's a strong interest in mine, you know. And the whole evolution issue was really big. That was that was where I camped out probably for the first three years of, of doing apologetics. And I'm an old Earth creationist. I, I think the Big Bang is really good evidence for the God of the Bible. Um, and I argue that way. And, and that's the way you'll see people like Norm Geisler and William Lane Craig. They, I mean, they, they argue from that. Um, the cosmological argument for the existence of God, when you couple that with the, with the scientific evidence, to me is overwhelming. I, I just don't understand, um, how you can remain an atheist when you couple those two, uh, pieces of evidence together. Sure. <laughs> And uh, I think the you, we were talking about Stephen Hawking a little bit before, and how the Coulomb uh, cosmological argument sort of kind of falls uh, was still still is alive and kicking with uh, Hawking's new new works and stuff like that. Well, you know, I have if you go to my website, that's logosapologia.org, www.logosapologia.org. There's a there's a post called Stephen Hawks Stephen Hawking's descent into futility and there's a YouTube video that I made for that and um you know what he, what Hawking did I don't know if, if if you've read his books he he had a book out years ago called um, a brief history of time and a lot of people thought that he was a theist because in that book you know Hawking talks about well if we discover the grand theory of everything in physics then we'll have you know, understood the mind of God. I mean, he would he would make all these statements and invoke the name of God in that book. And um, so a lot of people thought that he believed in God, but actually he, he he didn't really at all. It was kind of more like this deist idea, but it wasn't even that. I think he was just kind of using it as a colorful uh, metaphor. Because um, his latest book, um, 
has come out and it's called the grand design. All right. And it created quite a, a little stir. And, um, he, uh, he basically came out and made a statement that because there's a law such as gravity, the universe, we, the universe, I can't remember exactly. Okay. The universe did or the universe can create itself out of nothing. Okay. Let me see. I'm going to look it up on my website if I can see if I can find the exact quote. Here we go. Let's see. Yeah. And just to, as you're looking that up, the, the issue there, of course, is that is the age old problem is that nothing comes from nothing. Um, and so as William Wayne Craig often says, I mean, if it's to believe that something comes from nothing is, um, literally believing in magic. It's like believing, why not, as he says, root beer or bicycles or, uh, whatever else he says there. <laughs> yeah. Here, here it is. Okay. This is the exact quote. Now I'm going to read it. This is from Stephen Hawking's book, The Grand Design. Because there is a law such as gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Spontaneous creation is the reason there is something rather than nothing. Why the universe exists, why we exist. Okay. <laughs> All right. Now, it doesn't take a degree in philosophy to see that this is totally intellectually bankrupt. The universe cannot, the universe created itself. Okay. That concept right there is logically incoherent. To create yourself, you would have to exist before you existed. Okay. That, that's a, that's what you call logically incoherent. So here we have a brilliant man, undoubtedly brilliant, but he wrote this in a book, okay? And it's there for all to see. And there's, <laughs> there's no way to defend that. Uh, that's, that's incoherent. I'm sorry. The universe cannot, you can't create yourself. Right. And even create, if, even if you had gravity, for instance, there, gravity is, is, it's not as if nothing is, is, Philosophically, nothing. Nothing is nothing. It's not something. Right. Um, right. Yeah. What? Because there is a law such as gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Okay. That but presupposes thing, that gravity existed in that well, state of gravity nothingness. is part of the universe, right? I mean, Hawking knows as well as anyone that the way the mathematics works for the Big Bang cosmology is that there was a point in time where there was no time there was nothing there was no laws of physics gravity didn't exist nothing did i mean that's what nothing is like you said now hawking i mean his claim to fame what really made him a famous physicist happened i think in 1971 it might have been 71 to 73 but him and another physicist roger penrose wrote a paper that they won a big prize for um that calculated you know the big bang back to the origin and, and what you get is zero. I mean, it doesn't start. I mean, what they try to say now is they presuppose a singularity or, you know, all these, you know, kind of nebulous um, points, you know, all these weird ideas. They're, they don't want it to be nothing. Well, any matter and matter reacted and that created it. But I mean, there was no any matter and matter. I mean, the mathematics take you to a point where there's nothing. OK. And then. Something happens, and then there's everything. It is funny, Chris, when you start to look into the different ideas at this point, you know, like maybe there's multi-universes and stuff like that, but you're just pushing the the problem further back in space. You've got to define where do those universes come from. And it, it's almost like, okay, wait a minute. These guys are just supposed to be the smart guys, and mm -hmm. this is not smart. Yeah, it's not. And, you know, the thing that's interesting is – 
when I when Hawking's book came out and the post that I, that's on the website where, I, where I'm discussing this idea, is I was reading a book by a, a Christian theologian, uh, A. W. Tozier, and I, I highly recommend him. Anybody that wants to get a little sampling of theology written pretty much to the layman, but his book is called The Knowledge of the Holy. And you know, I was reading that book right when this controversy started with Hawking's new book, and um. I'd like to read the section that really stood out at me. It was, it's in my post here, so I'm going to read it, but it just, it nailed it to, you know, right in my mind what was going on. It says, one cannot long read the scriptures sympathetically without noticing the radical disparity between the outlook of the men of the Bible and that of modern man. We are today suffering from a secularized, secularized mentality. Where the sacred writers saw God, we see the laws of nature. Their world was fully populated. Ours is all but empty. Their world, their world was alive and personal. Ours is impersonal and dead. God ruled their world. Ours is ruled by laws of nature, and we are always once removed from the presence of God. And what are these laws of nature that have displaced God in the minds of millions? Law has two meanings. One is all external rule enforced by authority, such as the common rule against robbery and assault. The word is used to denote the uniform way things act in the universe. But this second use of the word is erroneous. What we see is simply the paths God's power and wisdom take through creation. Properly, these phenomenon, not laws, but we can call them laws by analogy with the arbitrary rules of society. Science observes how the power of God operates, discovers a regular pattern somewhere and fixes it as a, quote, law. Uniformity of God's activities in his creation enables the scientist to predict the course of natural phenomenon. The trustworthiness of God's behavior in his world is the foundation of all scientific truth. Upon it, the scientist rests his faith. And from there, he goes on to achieve great and useful things in such fields as navigation, chemistry, agriculture, and medicine. Okay, yeah, that just encapsulates what's going on with Stephen Hawking, don't you think? Absolutely, that's a good book too. Um, Well, let me let me just uh, try to wrap it up here and um, ask you. I guess number one, what what is the way that people can support you? What what um, is it? What's the best way to get uh, updated with your material and just how would you recommend people finding your stuff? Well, I mean, the website is it. I mean, I I, I accept anybody that friends me on Facebook. Um, I'm just Chris Putnam on Facebook. And uh, I have C-R-I-S, not C-H. C-R-I-S, no H. Yeah. My mom made me weird. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I have – I'll I'll accept friend invites from anybody on there. And, uh, you know, I haven't really done much as far as support, you know, as as far as people wanted to donate money from me. I I have a button on my website, but honestly, I I don't ever really get much money and I'm not really trying to at this point. But um, what well, one thing that I would say, if you want to donate to me, there's there's another thing on my website. And here's it's it says seven dollars in Africa can. Feed a person for one month. Educate two children for one one school year. Save one person's life from malaria. Provide clean water. There's this thing called mochaclub.org, 
and uh, I've made videos, and, and in lieu of ever donating me money, I ask people to to sign up for this. And it, all it is is they you, you give them your 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 credit card or your um, debit card number, and they take seven dollars out of your account every month. And it's called Mocha Club because that's about what you would spend on you know a cup of coffees if you go to Starbucks. So for that price, and this place is is very accountable. They're, they're listed you know on like the Christian Evangelical Accountability website. I mean, so you know where your money's going. They're they're legit. Um, but you can look at the website yourself and, and verify all that. But I mean, literally, you can save somebody's life and, and put a kid through school and um, give people clean drinking water for the price of drinking two coffees a month. And um, and I do it. I mean, it's it, you don't even re- you don't really even notice the money's missing once a month, and you literally are making a huge impact in somebody's life. So um, I, I would encourage you know if you want to, I have a team. And it's like. I think it's the Logos Apologia team for Mocha Club. If you go to my website, there's a right under where I have a thing for Liberty Seminary. There's a thing that says seven dollars in Africa can. If you click on that, you can go join my Mocha Club team, and you can help improve the lives of some people that don't have all the advantages we have. I mean, we we have so much, and we don't even really recognize it. I mean, I can't believe there's people that don't have clean water in the world, but there are millions of people that don't have clean water that that get sick and and die just because they don't have water. Um, And, you know, it's it's kind of crazy the way this world is, that, that that kind of thing goes on when we have all the luxuries that we have, but it's real. Um, so that, I would really appreciate it. Anybody that would join my team there. Um, that's really what, you know, cool. as far as support, I would, that's what I would like. Um, but as far as keeping up with me, the website is, is it Facebook? Um, that, but mainly the website, my YouTube channel. Okay. And I'll put links of all that stuff in the show notes on uh, my website too, of this uh, episode. And I guess that's it. Thanks for sharing your testimony with us. Thanks for all the information. I want to encourage everybody to check out all your uh, sites And I guess that's it. Thanks a lot, Chris. Thank you so much, Chris. No problem. Thanks for listening to Nowhere to Run. You can download all of the archives to this show and others I've done for free at NowhereToRunRadio.com. Your prayers and donations are needed and appreciated. You can partner with me to reach many more people with discipleship, apologetics, and the gospel. Go to Nowhere to Run Radio to help support this ministry. Thanks for your time.